0: Out here in the perimeter there are no stars, out here we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we have a special guest. This week it's going to be the turn of the singer, author, feminist, activist. It is the one and only Alice Bagg, who I spoke to to find out more about life, love and poetry and much, much more. As you'll find out in this interview, one-time member of the LA punk band The Bags wrote a book a few well over a decade ago, which came out on Feral House Publishing, titled *Violence Girl*, and has recently released. of solo albums in her last one from 2020, Sister Dynamite, um, that's just come out, well, two years ago, and also has got live dates, and uh, is going to be playing at the Las Vegas Bowling Punk Weekend, which we're very excited about. I will give you a link to her website in the notes below, but this is the interview, so after several minutes of interesting but casual chat, that gets edited out. We get down to that exciting subject that was the early form of beers. Alice, it's over to you.
1: Yeah, and actually, David Bowie was a big part of it. I remember listening to Bowie when I was in middle school at the suggestion of a friend who was, um, we were both kind of outsiders, you know, the type of kid that would eat lunch alone um, and uh, didn't really have a little pack of people to hang out with. At least, not my first. My first year in uh, yeah. in uh, junior high, and um, you know, I felt like David Bowie and Elton John. Um, I felt like I really connected with them. I, I, you know, for one thing, I remember reading an interview with Bowie where he spoke about being bisexual, and that was a revelation to me. I had never even <laughs> thought of the. Idea that you know one could be uh, sexually attracted to either gender or both genders, and as someone who was just you know just starting to go through puberty and just realizing uh, that I had sexual feelings, like um, having a major rock star come out as bisexual was very liberating for me. Yeah, uh, and I also I felt like you know I really felt connected to. Um, I remember listening to Hunky Dory, listening to uh, Life on Mars and really feeling like that girl who was alienated and is like running away, um, you know, and, and looking for something else, looking for life on Mars. And as it is, you know, I did eventually find that life on Mars when I got into punk.
0: <laughs> yes, this is true. I know, it's got. Um, everybody I virtually speak to you know that is such a moment in their life is that kind of hearing one of those punk bands punk records for the first time has a huge huge impact I mean my I mean the other person that I I do have an older brother who was seven years older who had a huge influence but he was into prog rock so I you know thought he was cool at the time so I was also very keen on listening to the, the work of Yes, and Genesis, and Wishbone Ash, and Barclay James Harvest, and the solo work of Rick Wakeman, which is quite interesting. In later life, having that kind of knowledge, did you have any kind of older brothers or sisters who gave you any kind of musical, you know, inspiration or even cultural inspiration? Yeah,
1: my um, my sister was the the one that is closest to my age. was ten years older than me, so the influences she gave me were um, like soul music. She was listening to a, a lot of Motown, Stax Records. Um, so Soul is like, I, she took me to go see uh, Lady Sings the Blues, which was the story of Bessie Smith with Diana Ross in the lead role. I'm sorry. No, no. I'm sorry. The story of, uh, of Billie Holiday with uh, with Diana Ross in the lead. But during that particular movie, there is a Bessie Smith playing, is a Bessie Smith song playing, in the background uh, during a particularly harrowing scene, and I remember like just thinking like, who is that? Who are, who's playing that song? And I was a young kid, but I started immediately like trying to figure out like, I need some more Bessie Smith music. Yes. Uh, so I think uh, you know Bessie Smith, uh, Billie Holiday um, Coco Taylor, uh, these soul influences were really important to me, but also my father, uh, my father listened to ranchera music. He listened to mariachi music, which is something that is really, I really connect with it very strongly. I just spent 18 months living in Mexico city and one of my favorite things to do is just go see a mariachi or listen to mariachi music and sing at the top of my lungs with people around me who all know all the lyrics to, you know, to all the same songs. So it's it's really, uh, I don't know, it's just something that's really close to my heart.
0: Yes, well, it's, got, it's an interesting cultural sort of. Um, yes, I'm not, I'm not sure if the word "fusions," right? But you know, it's an interesting cultural sort of input to your life, isn't it? Having I mean, because your father was Mexican.
1: Yes, yes, and I'm Mexican too. I, I even though I was born in the United States, I got my Mexican citizenship, so I'm really excited and proud about that. And I do think that it is a sort of fusion when uh, when you become a, a person that's generating music or art in any form your your history goes with you right and maybe you're maybe you're not even aware of it but um you know you're you're creating music and then all of a sudden somebody says hey that sound or that thing you do is like if you listen carefully it's tied back to um to your ranchetta roots like i wasn't even aware that i was putting out ranchetta vibes until a scholar came up to me and said, do you know that you do this? And and pointed it out. Um, and then I realized, okay, it's in there. It's <laughs> in there, it, uh, yes. Yeah. Same with the soul music. I feel like there are times when I'm singing where I hear like, you know, a little bit of soul in my voice. So can't yeah. get away from it.
0: Well, it's interesting having that, you know, um, those layers actually, because I think with kind of and it's a bit of a sweeping statement but we love to see sometimes sweeping statements are kind of okay because then you can pick them apart and see that they're not completely true but I think the British punk scene became quite, quite um just very boring and rock and, and very sort of laddie and a bit blokey and a bit kind of basic where that kind of American especially New York punk scene had a lot more variety in a lot of the sounds and the lyrics and the kind of the attitude as well, quite quickly, you know, because you got, you know, you had sort of CBGBs and then, you know, Max's Kansas City and the Mud Club, but then you had Z Records and and that kind of roster of bands on there is so different to sort of there's the Sham 69s and, and those kind of more shouty bloke bands, which all started sort of you know, punching the fist.
1: Yeah, not to uh, not to take anything away from, you know, the British scene or the New York scene, but L.A. had a really eclectic scene that was super creative and doing its own thing, heavily populated with women. I mean, women were in practically every band. And if they weren't in the band, they were managing the band. If they weren't managing the band, they were roadies for the band or they were photographers or they, they had some role. And uh, I felt like the punk scene in LA was really steered by women. Um, we had a very popular, like our CBGBs was, um, was the mask And the mask was uh, a place that was run by this uh, Scottish immigrant named Brendan Mullen. But because he was an immigrant, they wouldn't sign the lease for this club or it wasn't actually a club. It was a basement, but uh, they wouldn't sign the lease to him. So these women that were in a band called backstage pass actually were the ones that went in and put their credit down and like uh, rented the space. Although, you know, in the, in the stories that are told, these women that were pivotal in creating a home for L.A. punk are often let, left out of the story. But um, yeah, I mean, I feel like not only do we have a very um, heavily female influence in L.A. punk, but also L.A is populated with a lot of different cultural influences there was like a lot of latinos there were um some Asians some blacks some some jews some armenians some wealthy people some poor people some like i was like it was really um a diverse gathering of weirdos that created the la punk scene and there was a very strong um art feeling to it like visual art element you know we yes. had performance artists like joanna went who uh performed at punk shows which yes. was kind of i don't know if that happened at every you know in every punk scene but um in la it wasn't unusual to have performance art as well as a band
0: yes i did an interview yeah. with joanna recently actually and, uh, oh you did yes i know i was looking at some of her work it's um yeah, her dry cleaning bill must have been huge because there was a lot of, there was a lot of. <laughs> Not time. only
1: that, her audience's dry cleaning bill. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I was really amazing. Yeah, I was so pleased, you know, to have interviewed her, and she was so amazing. And her work was, I mean, yeah, because the performance art is quite interesting, isn't it? Because you had in the late '60s and early '70s the coquettes, who obviously people like Fayette and Pam Tent and. And hibiscus and all those characters, Sylvester. I mean, mm-hmm. they were also on that kind of west side, weren't they? So yeah, there was. There was, a- and
1: then you have like Tomato Duplanti and Tommy Gear that were coming out of that scene as well, and brought um, a band like the Screamers, which was also not your typical, you know, guitar boy band. It was like really much more artistic and much more creative. Um, or the weirdos who like were this (laughs) um, Dada painting come to life on stage. They were, uh, they were absurd, but they were musical. They were colorful, but they were like just sparse and direct. Um, So I don't know. I think they, I, I'm a huge fan of LA (laughs) punks. Oh, yeah makes... no
0: it's good it's it's kind of, it is fascinating just these little scenes because because uh, you know i I sort of hadn't realized it quite so much until I've been doing this as that each place has its own sort of story and narrative and world, doesn't it, you know, and it's all very yeah, it's all it's not completely contained, but it's quite there is a vibe isn't there? There is you know each little each huge place in this massive country called America, unlike the u k which is tiny, and we sort of can just literally sort of pop around you know, from place to place quite quickly. It's it's kind of interesting, that kind of world. Did they, just going back to what you were mentioning, in bands, did people like the Mumps come into, were they from LA or were they elsewhere? And Lance Loud and...
1: <clears throat> I think, I'm not sure, I mean, I know that are members of the Mumps that were... Um... I think they went back and forth for, between New York and LA, right. and uh, I know that they were in LA for a while, but I'm not sure if they were also in um, in New York for a while.
0: Yes, because that so, was quite, that was an interesting, you know, the the this, this TV series, wasn't it, with. Um, Was his name Lance Loud? Or yeah, Lance Loud. Right, because I've done interviews with. uh, Is it Christian Hoffman?
1: Christian Hoffman. Oh yeah, super Um, talented guy. (laughs) Yeah, amazing. Massive, massively talented. Very uh, Christian Hoffman. Yeah,
0: and the best. But yeah, amazing stories.
1: But then yeah. So when did
0: you? Because so when you got to that kind of that formative age of sixteen, did you stay on at school or did you leave at that stage? Is it, I wasn't no oh, sure. no
1: I I graduated from high school <laughs> I so I was I was done at 17 and I um, at the time I was trying to form an all-girl band with a group of my friends who all went to different I was in Catholic school and they were in different Catholic schools um so we we wanted to form a glam band though so that's like we were kind of still living in glam land this is like 75 76 Mm -hmm. and we're trying to form a glam band and um but we don't have the technical skills at that point to really execute I mean like I was a huge fan of Elton John who Mm -hmm. has you know he has the skills right and uh my uh my bassist was really into Queen and the guitarist was into David Bowie so these are all people that like You know, they have seasoned and uh, super proficient and talented musicians. And we were just beginners. So around this same time, punk came into our world. And uh, we realized, like, oh, hey, (laughs) we can play punk. We might not be able to play Bohemian Rhapsody, but we can play, you know, we can play a Ramones song or a, yes. or a Runaway song. So, so that was about the time that, like, our my senior year in school was when I really started to mentally make the shift to punk.
0: That was the punk. And did were bands like Fanny had they were they on your radar at that stage?
1: Yes, bands like Fanny were on my radar, um, but they were not easy to find i mean this is a time before like you could just look somebody up on the internet like you had to like i remember um listening hearing fanny at a friend's house who had the record but i didn't have any of their records yeah um, and by the record i'm talking about the record with the cover where they're like they have their back to you and they're kind of peeking back tongue-in-cheek fanny yeah um, <laughs> but know- um it was, quite, it was right.
0: kind of it was quite interesting what you, you know, saying that, because I, I, I had the same experience. You'd want to hear something, but I actually couldn't get to hear it. It was like people wouldn't understand that now, but you think, I've just seen this advert, and people keep talking about this band, but I can't, you know, unless I save up quite a bit of money, which felt like quite a lot, and buy the record on chance, I won't be able to hear it. I can't just go, oh, can I have a... Yes, yeah, so it's quite tricky,
1: wasn't it, really? Yes, weird? it was, yeah. I mean, we had to work hard to get our music in those days. And uh, then- but, yeah, I remember... Yeah, and even then, you could go to a record store and they could not have it if it wasn't like one of the heavily promoted records, right? Something that was on a big label and the, they you know, they really were pushing it. So a band like Fanny could easily get lost because even though they were, I don't remember which label they were on, but they were on a major label and uh, they kind of fell between the cracks, which is a shame because they are also very talented very capable musicians um i know that david bowie went to see them and commented on like what what a great band they were and unfortunately um i don't i i really i i don't feel like they ever got the recognition they deserve
0: no they didn't i remember because i did an interview with the drummer and um and I remember the day there was a David Bowie you know mention wasn't there something down down the line that he'd he said they, they were a brilliant band, and um, for some reason, you know, I think we picked up people like Susie Quatro. <coughs> Susie Quattro got kind of picked up at that stage, and it's like, right, that's fine. We've got yeah. Susie Quattro, and then we got Chrissy Hines in The Pretenders, and I mean, obviously, there were other bands as well, but they, and The Slits came along and The Raincoats and people, but, you know, it was like certain bands just didn't sort of get that kind of traction. Which was...
1: Well, I think Fanny was a little bit earlier, although Susie Quattro was also playing in The Pleasure Seekers around the same time that that um, Fanny was doing their thing. It was a little bit earlier than some of these other bands, right? Like Fanny and the Pleasure Seekers were like early seventies, late sixties, and um, you guys had what did you, you had that band that did like Peanut Butter? What was you <laughs> <I don't> remember <laughs> the name peanut butter. of the? Yes, they did a song called Peanut Butter. I just, <laughs> but. But it wasn't. Uh, it wasn't. Um, it wasn't quite as as like the whole idea of women playing rock wasn't catching on immediately. Yes, which is kind of crazy, you know, because I think women have had opportunities in the past to play in bands, and then I don't know if this happened in England, but in the United States. During World War II, women formed these like big swing bands, and it was all female musicians that were gifted, <laughs> like talented, popular. Uh, they'd play these big shows, they'd play these big, you know, dance concerts, and uh, and then the war was over, and the women were all sent back home to, uh, you know, get married and have babies. <laughs> And and they were no longer, um, I mean, bands like the Sweethearts of Rhythm were like left out of the story. Like, have you heard of them?
0: Uh, Well, the only one I can remember from that period, I wasn't born, but it was the Andrews sisters and... Then there was and and that that kind of the Andrew sisters were quite big during that period, and obviously we had Vera Lynn, which is a slightly different thing, but but not not that particular band that you mentioned, actually,
1: yeah, but they were like a full like a big swing orchestra with like you know drums and horns and violins and keyboards and vocals, like a swing band, you know yes, yes. and um and. All of a sudden, all these, and there were multiple bands like that, and all of a sudden they vanished, which is, um, which is something that's very sad, you know, when I think of punk, and I tell you that punk in LA was made up and led by women, and it, I mean, I don't want to leave up the, out the guys, because they were great, they were, they actually, they were not, they were not threatened by us, which was beautiful, so we love them, but, um, <laughs> but they, you know, they, um they moved over and allowed us to to take up some room, which was great because we were going to take up the room anyway. But uh, but it seemed for a while that things started to change. You know, like it it felt like there was this initial sweet period of punk, um, maybe seventy seven to about nineteen eighty, where it was very, um, how should I say, very like. Uh, um, open and uh, it like, it welcomed creative voices. (coughs) Excuse me. (laughs) That's good. No, it's up. it's the allergies.
0: Yes, I can. I can tell that was that was. I don't
1: know if you can. I don't know if you can edit the coughing yes. out. <laughs> <laughs> that keeps it real.
0: No, no, it's fine okay. actually. But yes, it's. Um, I think with all scenes though, there is a sort of a honeymoon period, isn't there? Where there's yeah a, the people kind of involved are, you know, out there with a certain spirit that is kind of uniting them and a certain good vibe, and then sometimes that seems to even sometimes that sort of open community can also then attract a certain other element. I know it's a slightly another simplistic kind of sweeping statement, but I have seen, especially the alternative movement where, you know, people would squat and they, oh, this is great. And then it's, oh, we should let everyone squat. And it's like, I'm not sure this squat's working quite so much now because it's all, it's got a bit, uh, it's got a bit dingy and stuff like that. And I think that happened a lot in the eighties really, but that's a, you know, that's people kind of, the growing period, and that can be quite painful as well, can't it?
1: Yeah, I think one of the things, I mean, there's several things at work here, you know, like um, as the scene grows and it goes out into a mainstream audience, it picks up mainstream values sometimes, and sometimes those values are just in sync with the status quo, rather than, you know, they don't get the whole... Um, the whole idea of like, oh, we're, we're, we're the people that were considered too weird to uh, fit in into the mainstream. And all of a sudden, your scene becomes the new mainstream. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, and instead of challenging, you know, like um, the values of the past, it is mimicking them
0: yes it's going it's going back to the old kind of old ways and i think compromises and it's it's certain decisions and lots of bands have that kind of moment where when they look back they kind of realize they they should have taken a different record deal they should have signed a slightly different you know contract rather than being swept along and thinking suddenly Gosh, they're offering us lots of money. This is great. You know what could possibly go wrong? realizing they're just kind of taking a bargain with some, you know, <laughs> the, the capitalist system, which is which is well kind of versed in how they're going to get their money back from a band. But those you yeah. know, young young idealistic kids are not not sort of quite there. They haven't got the tools and the awareness and um suddenly you know they've been yes they, they've well
1: i don't i don't think it's i mean i feel like my, what i'm talking about is more like the um the defining of a of a scene that happens after it's like it's it's starting to change right it's the scene is changing it's growing it's evolving and um you know, like anything else, you know, when you're growing, you you make mistakes, you trip up, you fall when you're learning to walk. And um, the thing is that somewhere along the way, some member of the establishment decides I'm going to write about this scene or I'm going to put out a book and say, like, you know, these are the important players and it turns out that they think that all the important players are the players that are like them, which is like someone who is in a position of power and maybe, you know, a white male and is now writing about white males as if they created this, they created civilization. Basically, I mean, basically, <laughs> I'm just sick of like hearing how like um white guys are are you know the source of everything good i mean they you know <laughs> you contribute like everyone else um, and but i'm just sick of like them taking all the credit
0: yes i i think it's been an interesting period recently of the narrative is being sort of expanded to include different sort of stories within different different time frames which initially was edited quite carefully and told in a rather nice and careful way and then other aspects have come in which has made some people really uncomfortable and go oh do we you know it's all become politically correct or woke as the new kind of insult but it's actually right you know that, but, but
1: that... like how many books how many punk books have you seen that just have a bunch of white guys like it's just like this is the story of punk and it's like a bunch of guys <laughs> and there are no women involved and very few people of color yes. you know it's like it's like to me seeing somebody like polystyrene, like she should be the poster <laughs> the poster of person for what punk stood for right she was somewhat awkward she was a woman she was she had an original voice not only like her in, in her ideology, but also in her voice, right? her sound. Um, so anyway, yeah, sorry. No, I, I, no, I, I
0: agree. And, that, and it, it was quite interesting because I don't know if they were a punk band or an eighties band, but there was Bam, was it Bam Bam who I interviewed a member recently and they had a, a black female singer who was um, yes, the sort of the vocalist and and songwriter. And again, Yeah, I mean, there's an an awful lot of the narrative became quite simplistic as like, oh, punk started with, you know, the Ramones, the Dam, the Sex Pistols, the Clash, you know, and it's almost like, oh, this is a nice little package. And they all became, you know, and and it's kind of quite easy. But then I think more recently, this has been expanded quite a lot. And people have started to, yes, talk about different areas in both, you know, the UK, Europe you know, elsewhere and America and different bands who might have only released an, a couple of singles or, a, or an, you know, extended EP, but had an important impact on what happens next, which which makes it quite an interesting, makes it a much more interesting story than it can be presented when it's on a, you know, rather smart Disney channel or Netflix. So I think that's that's what's been quite interesting of late you know the the sort of the telling of the story and and why certain things are told and why why certain things aren't explained that's my theory oh hello hello
1: oh yes oh yeah i'm here i'm here i'm here i'm Sorry. sorry
0: Yes, so look, going back, I know, this is, yeah, No, but anyway, I was kind of I was agreeing that, you know, it's, what I've kind of enjoyed doing this show has been developing, you know, or not developing, but sort of listening to and hearing the different stories that have sort of made up both the sort of the punk period and also the 80s period as well, because obviously that's, um, yes, because for me, the 80s became told, you know, the alternative 80s was very much, you've got this band, this band, and that was the 80s, and it's like... That wasn't the eighties at all. That was that was one person's you know who's control in that story. So that's why it's, it's yeah. In, interesting. yeah. That's that's one of them. Anyway, look. So going back, when did you discover and because I've only been a, a music fan, but you obviously wanted to take it further. When did you discover your voice and become more interested in in sort of wanting to be part of a, a musical journey?
1: Um, I think I. I mean, I I was kind of awkward in school, and I didn't have a lot of um, friends. I didn't feel like I had a lot of agency. I grew up in an abusive household um, where I felt powerless. Um, but there was one time, <laughs> one day a week, where the music teacher would come into my uh, my classroom, um, and she would single me out as someone who could lead a song or play the auto harp or lead a group in a round or something. And, and I I became music teacher's pet <laughs> and it really helped me tremendously. It helped me feel like I had some, um, a little bit of power and that maybe somebody would listen to me if I was singing. Because it felt like that was the only time that anybody actually listened to me. Um, In an elementary, I was still in elementary school when my music teacher got me a job singing for educational bilingual cartoons. And uh, they were musical cartoons. So I would sing a certain part. And uh, I remember getting that first paycheck, going into a recording studio, first of all, was really thrilling. And uh, seeing these videos come out and getting a paycheck and realizing that my paycheck was more than our monthly rent. And I was, you know, what, like maybe nine years old, eight years old. and, um, and And I thought, like, someday maybe I could be a singer and get paid for it. And that could be my job. So it was the first time that I thought, like, maybe I can be a singer.
0: Yes. And that was it. That was fantastic. I mean, that's such a break, actually, isn't it? And then from then, how did you start to form a band? Did you have various friends at school or various people that you started to bump into that also had the same kind of idea or dream?
1: Yeah, well, it was a long time from that little (laughs) from being that little eight year old girl until I was in high school and uh, actually started Making friends with these girls at different schools who were music fans. and i I we met because we were we would stalk our favorite musicians. so um i there was a program called The Share Show that filmed in Hollywood at uh, CBS Studios. And I remember um, meeting Patricia, who would later, you know, become my friend and my my first basis, Patricia who I, uh, uh, Morrison, who now is Vanian, right? Mm-hmm. And um, we were there to see Elton John on, on the share show and we wanted to meet him. And as we were standing out in the parking lot of CBS studios waiting for uh, Elton John to arrive, this limousine passed by and it happened to be Michael Jackson. <laughs> It so it's really funny. It was and we just, you know, he rolled his window down and asked us who we were waiting for. And we're just like, we're waiting for Alton John. We're actually not waiting for you. But um, but he was really nice. Anyway, I got I got off my story. Um, I don't even remember what you asked me. I went back into my memory bank and got yes. lost in, in meeting Patricia. So we met through our uh fan through being fans and i think in our in our imaginations we want it to be groupies because to us it seemed like groupies were the women who were closely associated with um with music during i felt like during the glam um, <coughs> during the glam period um, <clears throat> like the role that was acceptable for women or that was more commonly given attention in rock magazines was the role of groupie. It wasn't really like there weren't that many women getting attention as musicians themselves. So we imagined ourselves being groupies, but we were kind of not great at it. (laughs) We didn't really want to, we really didn't want to uh, please uh, the guys. We really just wanted to have to be part of the of the musical life. Yes. And um, so I think around that time we became disappointed with our experiences trying to be groupies. We were failed groupies and we decided, why don't we just become musicians instead?
0: Yes. This is, this is, this is good. So what was the, the lineup of the first band that you were in? This is the bags, isn't it?
1: Well, no, this is a band um, before that called Femme Fatale. And, um, it was, it was a band that we were trying to form that was Glam, the one that was influenced by Glam, right? And it yeah. was Patricia um, playing bass, uh, me as a singer, our friend Marlene, who was learning to play guitar. Uh, we actually were looking for a drummer, but we hadn't found one when um, Kim Fowley called us up. And invited us to go to an audition because he, he had, he was trying to form his new Runaways. It had a falling out with the Runaways. Yes. And um, we went <coughs> to this audition. And the way it worked out was like, it was in this big studio. And he had a bunch of um, female musicians there. And he would like call us up in different configurations and uh, if he liked you, he asked you to stay, and if he didn't like you, he let he sent you out to wait in the loading dock. So I quickly made my way out to the loading dock. I was uh, rejected very, very quickly, and um eventually, the whole band was outside <laughs> and one of the people that was there was our our drummer uh she was this very young girl and uh, my mind is blank right now. I can't even remember her name. Um, God, I'll remember later. I'm sure (laughs) but my mind is not cooperating, but she was, um, she was in junior high. We were in high school and she was in junior high, but she was there with her brother and, um, her brother, she was a good drummer and her drummer said, Hey, if you guys want to play with my sister, I'll manage you. And I'm like, okay, sounds like a good deal. Let's play with the sister. We don't need Kim Fowley to, you know, to have a band. So, we left there as a band, and it was uh, a really fun experience. We that was the first band was called Fatel. And how long did that last for? That lasted. uh, That was a, you know, (laughs) that was a failed thing we just uh we basically i don't even know why i'm telling you the story because we just practiced and never played a live show oh, um so it lasted i was gonna say, say it but it months. gave you an idea
0: of being in a band i guess it but this is important isn't it i think it's 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 a nice kind of way to get excited i guess you must have got excited thinking this is it we're on a project
1: yeah definitely i mean we, we had to like oh we had a long long way to go every time we rehearsed because as Patricia lived in a suburb on the east side of <laughs> I, it's not even not even in L.A. It was a little area called Whittier. And we had to go practice in an area by the beach called San Pedro, which was it was like a two hour drive for her every time we had to to uh, rehearse wow. a two hour drive each way. So, yeah. so it was a major thing, and we were trying to rehearse, and we were still in school. Um, so it was quite a quite an investment. But then the, uh, the we had a problem because the the manager ended up trying to seduce Patricia, and uh, and so the band fell apart.
0: Yes, because um, I don't think Kim Fairley was great either, was he? Young, young. Uh,
1: no, I don't think so. <laughs> So that's 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 a lesson in itself, right? Like manage yourself.
0: Yes, this is it.
1: Or and and or then, at least be be careful who you get to manage you.
0: I know this is yeah, it's so true. I mean, it's difficult being young because uh, you know judgment is so hit and miss, isn't it? I mean, then did the bags? Was that sort of quite quickly? Did that s- sort of come so? Out yes,
1: of- the bags immediately formed out of that. Um. uh The the. The members of, of fun Fatel did not make it to the bags. We actually started Patricia and I started playing with um one of her high school friends, um, named Janet. And uh we started rehearsing with her. We were still trying to form an all-female band. We put an ad in the local paper, it's a one ad paper, and um we asked for female musicians. I don't remember. It was a quirky ad that Patricia had. I think she... Oh, God, I, I don't remember how she worded it. But it had a, some quirky, like, references. And nice. we got these two punk guys that called us. And they're like, we want to be in your band. It was Jonanini and Geza X. Please give us a chance. We'll do whatever... You know, we'll wear dresses if you want us to. And uh, <coughs> excuse me. <clears throat> that's fine. And uh, we we went to their house and practiced in their living room and decided that that was the band. That That's what we had to do. So and,
0: and that's that, it. And that was a four piece at that stage.
1: No, it was five. It was uh, me singing, Patricia on bass, Janet on lead guitar, Geza X came in on rhythm guitar, and then uh, Joe Nanini on drums. Right. That was the first lineup.
0: That was the first lineup. And did you, uh, was that the lineup who uh, recorded the first single, Survive?
1: Uh, No, I think that is... A little bit later, that was uh, Rob Ritter. Rob Ritter, who uh, played guitar, he moved to lead guitar. And um, Craig Lee moved to rhythm guitar. And Terry Graham played drums. So it's completely different. um, It was just Patricia and I were the same. (laughs) Uh Everybody else is different.
0: Yes, because I did an interview with Terry Graham because he was in the gun club for a while, wasn't he, as well? With, yes. Um, mm-hmm. Yes. Gosh, my goodness. There was so there was quite a community in LA then. There was a like a, a bit of fluidity with people kind of going in, in the in in and out of each other's band. Would you
1: was, yes. that, mm-hmm.
0: was that kind yeah. of something? And did, did at that stage had you started picking up quite a following at, you know, and playing quite a lot of live
1: gigs. Yeah, we did. We, we picked up a following pretty quickly. We, um, we actually, we had a, a shtick, right? We were caught the bags because we wore paper bags on our heads. And, um, that lasted for about three shows before it got really, we got tired of wearing the paper bags of our heads, but it was, um, it was such a kooky and novel thing that people went to see it and um we actually the first show we ever had we were given the headlining spot and we kind of like were able to keep that momentum going and our our audience kept growing
0: yes and how did the and how did you as a band start to sort of develop your sound and and your your style was that was that something that you know that changed as you sort of became more confident and sort of a bit more aware of the instruments and your vocals and your you know you know putting down the melody and lyrics and stuff like that
1: I think you know it's funny that you that you say that because I think when Patricia and I um when we were working with Janet we were really like sitting in the garage (laughs) so cliche but like um just kind of Writing songs without knowing what we were doing, really like, you know, in a very, you know, the sort of song where you put your fingers on a string and you're like, I'm not sure what chord this is, but this is the sound I wanted to make. And, uh, and humming guitar parts to the, I remember humming, I remember Patricia humming a melody that would later become one of our um, best known songs, Survive to the guitarist so that she would play it right um but then as as time progressed we ended up getting um a member in our band craig lee who was he was a little bit older than us and he was a writer um he like actually was a writer for for tv and for and he had some articles in print and he was like a professional writer and uh, he started coming to rehearsals and he would have like multiple songs written and he would just hand me lyrics and you know tell the rest of the band look i got this idea for a song so at that point i think patricia and i actually kind of regressed and we stopped writing very like very much like i i think i wrote like two or three songs after that but i didn't write very much and patricia didn't either we just let craig lee Write the majority of the songs, Um, because he was just so. I mean, for every one song we had, he had ten.
0: Yes, that's quite intimidating, isn't it? Really, sort of. Yes, having that.
1: Yeah, I mean, we 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 thought he was very talented, and we were happy to have his songs. But it was kind of, it's one of those things. I mean, I feel like the same thing happened to me with cooking. Like my mom was a great cook, and consequently, I kind of suck at cooking. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so I was like oh why should I get in there and make anything it's not going to be as good as Mom's."
0: yes this is true actually and you you were the the first single survived that was on danger house records wasn't it did you yes was was that did you have to was that uh easy to find a label for you or did you have to sort of you know go around the, the different companies
1: no, we didn't. We didn't shop at all. We just—they came up to us and, and said, "You know, we want to put out your single." So they actually recorded four songs with us and uh, put two on a single, and then uh, one on a compilation album. And I think the other one just—I don't think it was it ever received an official release.
0: Right. So that was the second one. Was the, the on the compilation? We don't need the English, wasn't it? Was that the, the single? Yes. One? Mm-hmm. That was, and was that one that you'd written?
1: No, that was one that um the only of the of the songs that were released survive was the only one that was written by uh, Patricia and right. B. Yes. So as we we as we
0: sort of slipped into the eighties with great excitement, you you know we we had you know Margaret Thatcher. You know, and the conservative government, you know, taking up the '80s, especially. You had, you know, Reagan. What was it like, kind of culturally and politically, for you as as the sort of the decade changed and sort of that post punk time?
1: Well, I had uh, around the '80s. I had a major falling out with Patricia, and it was, you know, it was our baby, so our band kind of fell apart. Um, I think by, I don't know, it was like. By 1980, we were broken up or right around that time, right around the time that, uh, right around the beginning of the 80s, we were done. Um, But for me personally, I saw that sort of different kind of energy coming in. It was, I started to see um, a lot more guys in the pit. Uh, It went from like people pogoing to people slamming and um, it felt more aggressive, more homogenous, less creative, less, um, less open. So I was kind of turned off by that. And personally there, I had also experienced, um, having a lot of friends who were getting into drugs and uh, and were dying. Like it was not, it was far, far too common to hear of somebody having an overdose and either ending up in the hospital or in the morgue. So I felt the need to get away from that. And I, I remember saying, okay, I quit, I'm quitting music. I'm going back to college. um, And I am going to be an attorney. That's what, that's what I wanted to do. And, um, I quit the band. I signed up for college and, uh, I moved back home with my mom and dad because I, I just didn't, didn't want to be around another, uh, another person dying. And, um, that didn't last very long. Um, I mean, I did, I did finish school (laughs) and, um, But I didn't manage to stay out of bands because my roommate called me and said she needed me to to just play one show with her. She had a band called The Castration Squad, and uh, Patricia, who was the bassist in that band, could not do the show. And she said, can you just play this one show? And of course, my response was, I'm not a bass player, and I don't know how to play and uh, she said, so what? Just get up there and do it. So um, so I went to the rehearsal. I learned the songs. And I started playing with this other band called Castration Squad. And I I became their regular uh, bassist for a while. And then I moved to keyboards. And I was their keyboardist for a while. And, uh, and I, I kept going to school. I kept living at home for a little while. I think I lived at home until I finished school. Yeah, I did. So the next few years, I I lived in East L.A., but I really tried. I really, my lifestyle changed because when I was living in Hollywood, I was going out every single night to every show and to every party and, um, and really just being immersed in the scene. And I couldn't sustain that lifestyle and go to school so uh when i lived at home i would go to weekend shows occasionally a weekday show but it was not it was not to the same degree of being like in the midst of all the chaos as it had been in the past yeah
0: yes and it's probably an interesting sort of spiritual kind of balance isn't it sometimes you sort of have in i don't know I just remember sometimes being too involved and looking back and thinking, I wish I was a bit more relaxed about something. It would have been so much better. <laughs> but you know, <laughs> it's hard, isn't it, sometimes, you know. So did that so your 80s was was kind of study and being in, you know, the band castration.
1: Yes. And then I I I was in castration squad and um my I was in I was in castration squad, but I also at a certain point. I was in a band called uh, Funhouse. No, I'm sorry. Yes, Funhouse, and that was also in the early '80s. I'd say maybe '82, '83, with Craig Lee and uh, X Eight, who was a a zine maker, but he was also a musician and a few other people that were, you know, musicians that were known to me. Um. Mm-hmm. So I also did that band and got my my music has I have never really stopped making music. Um, it's just that there's a different level of commitment at different times in my life, but there's always got to be a band in my life. It seems like yes, even when I went, you know, I went to Mexico recently, and I thought, I'm retired. I'm gonna like, I'm going to focus on travel and uh, getting in touch with my roots and exploring the places where my family comes from. And I had all these plans, and the first thing I did was like, oh, let's let's play some music. I started playing with a band in in Mexico. So it's always kind of been like that for me.
0: Yes, because you've been very prolific in the last couple of years and and the last, you know, since 2016, you brought out your debut album didn't you and then followed up with Blueprint in sort of 2018 and then uh, two years ago sister Dynamite as well so obviously have you you sort of suddenly become much more kind of I don't know not creative but also much more focused on being able to get a project off the ground and and sort of get it committed and sort of completed at the same time
1: yeah, you know what? Everything changed for me around the time that I turned 50. <laughs> I think I just decided like what am I waiting for? <laughs> Why am I like not just completing these tasks? So, um yeah, I like I spent so much time writing with people and uh, you know, I'm and not that I not that like writing and performing whether you're performing in your living room or you're performing on a major stage, it's, it's enjoyable. It's intrinsically rewarding, but yes. I did have things that I, I wanted to accomplish. I did want to write my, my story down, uh, for my children and, and my, and even if it was just for my children and my family to know me a little bit better.
0: Yes. And,
1: um, uh, <laughs> Because it was over,
0: did you over 10 years ago write your memoir?
1: (coughs) I did, yeah.
0: And what was that? I wrote a memoir. What was that process like for you? Did you, was that when you were, I'm doing the maths here actually, that was probably when you were in your 40s, wasn't it? Was it?
1: No, I was almost 50 then. And uh, I was was going to, I I had been out with some friends and they were doing research for a play and they started asking me to just tell them stories about growing up in East LA. And I was telling the stories and one of the women turned to me and said, why don't you write a book? You have a lot of, you know, a lot of good memories. And, um, I went home that night and I told my husband and in the morning, when I woke up, he had left our laptop open, and he had created a a little um blog for me that was called "The True Life Adventures of Violence Girl." Now, Violence Girl is the name of one of the songs that the bags used to do, and the True Life Adventures was based on the fact that I grew up reading comic books, and i that sounded like a a very comic booky title, yeah, so um he left me with a challenge. He's like, you can, you can write, you know, you just have to write a page a day. Just, you know, you don't have to think of it as like writing a book, just write some stories. So um, when you break it down like that and you only have to write one page a day, it's very manageable. So I started writing um, just, I I had just moved um, into this, to this house in a different city, I had I'd moved from Arizona to California, and I had boxes in my living room that had photographs and receipts from my mother's house because my mother had passed away, and um, and it triggered all these memories. So this this these little bits of memorabilia um, served to kind of help me. Um, Help me start telling a story. And I really didn't think much of it, except like, well, it's interesting to remember this. It was kind of fun to to have this little nostalgic period in the morning where I would sit down with my coffee and write. Mm. And before long, I realized that people were actually reading it, and I started picking up people following the the blog. and um, And after a while, I felt like I had a responsibility because people would tune in every day to read the next page. And um, so I I ended up writing my book in about, oh, I would say maybe six, between six to eight months of writing every weekday. Um, (coughs) Excuse me. I would put my daughter on the school bus, you know, make her breakfast and put her on the school bus and then I would sit down with a cup of coffee, and I would just work on the blog and uh, look through photographs or look through whatever notes I had and uh, and start writing. And I wouldn't allow myself to have lunch until I had something that I could post. Yeah. And uh, lunch lunch is uh, something I really like to eat. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. so it was uh, it was motivation. It was motivating.
0: Amazing. That's that's fantastic. Did that also help process stuff as well for you, writing that, going through that? Definitely.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think um, around the same time that this was happening, um, somebody, I think it was on MySpace. Do you remember MySpace? (laughs) Yes, I know. It seems so (laughs) old-fashioned.
0: But yes, MySpace has cut an edge.
1: Somebody on MySpace wrote to me, and said like, Hey, I'm friends with you. And I'm friends with Patricia. You guys should make up. What are you guys arguing about? I think you both probably forgotten what the, you know, why you, why you're not friends anymore. And I thought about it. And as I I was writing all these memories of her, right? Like her in my life. And I'm like, what am I doing? Why am, why is she not in my life anymore? She was like my best friend. Yes. And we had a long history and I wrote to her. God, I was I was scared because I hadn't spoken to her, or had any contact with her in over thirty years. And I wrote to her, and she was receptive. You know, she didn't say. You know, she didn't. She we both were very. I think we were very cautious when we first started writing to each other. Yes. But after like you know, two or two or three goes like back and forth. You know, with with uh, correspondence it just felt like it felt so natural. We were both like, we both started reminiscing about things that had happened in the past and sharing things that we were in the middle of at that point. And, uh, and, and we have remained friends, which is really wonderful. And I think that all, that all kind of coalesced around the book. I did send her a copy of the book and, uh, and she said, okay, this is okay. I remember some things a little bit different, but overall it's okay. So I'm like, okay, great. <laughs> yeah,
0: yes, this is true. Did you have that moment with each other where you had that conversation about the things that kind of hurt, you know, the things, you know, because sometimes I've had that where someone said, oh, that thing you did, and you think, oh, really? That, and then they say, oh, that thing that you did to me. And I thought, oh, right, sorry, I didn't, you know, and it's that kind of almost – was that was did you have anything was that anything similar was or was it kind of more obvious what you know the the kind of the pain or the kind of struggle had been with the friendship no
1: I think we both kind of realized that we were never going to look at it through the same filter like you know I even like I remember saying I don't know like I don't when people ask me about how the bags broke up I don't ever know if I if if Patricia considers that she was thrown out of the band or that she quit the band and I, as far as I'm concerned, is like, she left, like the band, the band broke up. She was, when she, once she was gone, it was pretty much over. So, um, so I, it doesn't matter to me what, how, how it's worded. And if it mm-hmm. matters to her, I want her to go ahead and take the narrative and um, you know, I know I was shitty, so I'm, if, if, you know, like, I don't mind taking the blame and just saying, like, I was shitty, I regret it, I wish Patricia had been in my life the whole time, that we wasted 30 years not being friends is just a huge, like, regret of mine, but um, so I don't, you know, basically, I don't, I don't care, I don't care what uh what it was whatever it was it was a mistake and we should have I, I wish we had solved it
0: yes I know these are these are things that um but that that time when you messaged her which probably you know it always feels a little bit like when you hit send you know it's like oh I you know because then you feel a bit one can feel a bit exposed as well you know thinking God if they come back and it's And they're still, yeah, you know, I don't know how you felt felt about it, but there's a little bit of tension every time you look in your inbox, wondering what the response might be and if it's going to be, yeah, let's all just get on and try and be nice to each other. Or no, we're not going to be nice. There's still problems. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, It's it's a kind of, it's a fine line, isn't it? Sometimes.
1: I, I, I guess I'm just lucky that like, she is a grown up, you know. <laughs> She's like, she was ready to move on. Yes. And so was I. And I think we had enough good in our relationship that it outweighed whatever, like, it, it just goes to prove that, like, whatever broke us up in the first place was not very important because neither of us felt like it was worth bringing up again.
0: No, that's that's sometimes so. So, so going forward, the kind of the last album you did, which is Sister Dynamite, and then you've got some dates um, coming up this year, including the 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 punk bowling event at Las Vegas, which looks always amazing. I've been in Vegas just before that that event happened, and it always looks quite extraordinary. Um, will you be, you know, with your set now that you're playing? Is that mostly from your la- latter years, you know, your newer material, or do you sort of play material from all
1: through your your sort of career? I play mostly new stuff. I do, I realize that there are people there that will want to see, you know, hear uh, at least a couple bag songs. So I always throw a little bit of, a little bit of bag stuff in there. Just, um, I mean, I feel like I I need to, I spent a long time, like, just trying to move on from, um, from my history as a punk singer, as thinking like, Oh, I can do other things. I can play. I've been in bands that play different styles of music and I feel like, you know what? I, I need to honor everything that I've done. And, uh, and if people want to hear the bags, there's absolutely no reason why I should play it. So yes, I play some old stuff and, uh, but I also, you know, I play my new stuff too
0: yeah and when when you go out will that be with the band that you recorded the, the you know you were last in the studio with or do you have a yes. different like so you've you've got uh, this is is this quite a steady lineup you've got at the moment
1: well it isn't it isn't because i you know <laughs> it's a it's a band that i've been playing with for years but i was living in mexico so we weren't playing so in fact we have to like you know, get back on the rehearsal train and cat do some catching up because uh, we're out of practice.
0: Yes, absolutely. And and sort of also, do you have sort of material that you started to, you know, because that was twenty, probably nineteen twenty twenty when you were writing that, you know, that, that those songs. Have you got new material that's kind of waiting to come out soon?
1: Well, I'm always writing new songs. This last album, Sister Dynamite came out during the pandemic and uh I never toured it. So, I feel like I want to play like this particular um show that we're doing in Vegas will probably have maybe maybe half the set will be uh Sister Dynamite songs because um because it never really it never got to it never got the the exposure it deserved yes
0: absolutely and do you so are you sort of finding a whole new audience that are sort of um discovering your music now i mean do you when you look out you think oh these are some young kids people must be sort of picking up on you know i don't know i, I sort of know with a few bands they're sort of surprised by some of the members of the audience probably 10 years ago it would all be in, you know, sort of people their own age, and now they're looking and thinking, "These it's a lot of young kids who have discovered us for the first time." I just wondered if you've started having that same experience.
1: Well, I've, I've since I started um, doing my own my my touring uh, solo albums, that audience has, from the very beginning, been younger, um, because I wasn't doing bag songs and i was doing new music and i and i'm also like someone who really enjoys seeing new bands and new music so i would go see new young bands and kind of like <laughs> i'm there i'm in i'm part of that scene so they come to my shows as well um but sometimes when i play with like you know I don't even know if they've announced who's playing on this bill in Las Vegas, but it's a it's a it's a a really cool, um, very well established punk band. Um, So I realized that's going to have a little bit of an older audience and uh, definitely I'm going to do some bag songs there yeah, because they'll be they'll have the they'll have the references. They'll be familiar with that, but not all my fans are, you know, or, or not everyone who's a fan of Sister Dynamite is a fan of the bags, and not everyone who's a fan of the bags likes Sister Dynamite. So yes. that's you know that's kind of the challenge as as an evolving artist is that not everybody's going to like everything you do. No, but as long as you like everything you do, that's okay, right? <laughs>
0: <laughs> this is true. And do you have any other <clears throat> ideas or plans for more writing? I just wonder if you were going to sort of do any more of your. Sort um,
1: of- I'm always writing. I put out, um, I put out some some songs with my group in Mexico called Lucia y los Alfileres, um, and I also wrote some songs with them that we haven't recorded yet. Uh, I wrote, I did Spanish-language versions of a couple of songs that are on Sister Dynamite when I was in Mexico City. And, um, yeah, I'm always writing. That's like, I'm not always, like, writing with the intent of, like, this is for a particular band or a particular project. I just do it because it makes me feel good to write.
0: Yes, absolutely. And just kind of last question, if you – you know, I mean, if you could have whispered something to your like 16 year old self starting out, is there anything that you would have with all the kind of experience and sort of the wisdom that one hopefully picks up? Is there anything that you would have gone? Oh, yes, that would have been a really good thing to have been, you know, just have had in my mind, even if that person might have ignored it. I just wondered if there was anything that you would have thought, yeah, that was that was a real that would have been something that would have been good to have known when I was 16.
1: I think just to know that, um, to appreciate who you are at every point in your life and to like, I mean, I think like sometimes I'll think, I'll see a lack, right? You look at yourself and you think like, oh, I could have sung that better or or you look at yourself and you think, oh, I could be slimmer or I could be cuter or I could do the, uh, be smarter, right? And um, as you go through life, you realize, like, we are, we go through a lot of periods. Sometimes we're going to be smarter. Sometimes we're going to be dumber, fatter, thinner. You're never going to be younger. So appreciate (laughs) your youth, for sure. And, uh, and appreciate the mistakes you make, because um, hopefully, they're what makes you smarter. They're the, they're the stumbling blocks that show you that you have to do things a different way yes
0: this is true and as someone because i was beating myself up and someone said well look when you were that age making those decisions you were doing the best you could you know and with what you knew at the time so don't be so critical on yourself i went oh that's a good point i don't know it's it's easy yeah to be- that
1: is a that is a really good point <laughs>
0: Because, you know, it's easy to go through, for me, a period of just always think, I wish I'd done that, I wish I'd done it differently, but then being reminded to myself that, you know, I probably was doing the best, but, you know, looking back, it was like, okay, I should just give that person a hug and not be so critical of myself, so... Know it's an interest, it's you know, it's kind of interesting. Some but anyway, we're surviving, and that's the main thing. But look, thank you ever so much for your time, I really appreciate this. And um, yes, I hope it all really goes well for the year, and you have a great you know, tour in the in the well, dates you've got, and the an experience and an amazing time in Las Vegas doing your there which will be lovely thank
1: you so much yeah thank you
0: take care and thank you again for your time and it's been really it's been fascinating hearing your stories by the way and um, I've been making lots of little things to go and research now so I need to go (laughs) oh good good (laughs) yes it's always the learning curve so I hope hopefully that was all right but thank you and take care and um, yes have a lovely day is that okay
1: thank you you too yes
0: Yes. take care have a great
1: day I'll, I'll talk to you later bye bye bye
0: and that is the end of the interview. That was me in conversation with Alice Bagg, um, talking about her life in music and much more. Um, I will give you her link in the, to her website in the notes below. This has been the C86 Show, David Eastor. If you want to contact me for some nice reason, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. All these have been archived. You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. I know, I'm about to choke. So anyway, thanks a lot. Have a great week. Stay safe.